Here we go. Pull out your Bibles. Revelation chapter 4. Hey, if you're a guest with us, especially if you're some guy that, or, you know, woman that's like, I don't normally go to church and here, you know, I'm sort of stepping into this weird environment and I'm trying this and I don't know what I think about Jesus. And you hear the book of Revelation, which, you know, you may not even know what that is, or you might know what it is. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll give you a Bible. You can get one. Um, and, and also we're like in this series on worship and you're like, oh, great. That's really relevant for me, a worship series in the book of Revelation. But let me just say this. We are so glad you're here. And um, I'm, I think you are going to get relevance today. I think there's something for you today. And uh, we're going to make kind of this turn from worship to some very active service. And uh, we're just so glad that you would spend your morning with us. Okay, so let me just catch you up. In this book of Revelation and in this series, we've been talking about as John, the Apostle John, has this vision, this revelation uh, the opening scene is in this heavenly throne room and there is this throne surrounded by all kinds of people and angels and amazing things are happening. And right on the middle of the throne is, uh, is kind of three characters that all represent God, which is the Ancient of Days or, or sort of this God the Father character. And then there is the, the, seven, uh, the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, the perfected seven, perfected spirit, and then the slain lamb, which represents Jesus because of his sacrifice on the cross. And you get these characters on the throne. And the first week we talked about the most important question that you're ever going to answer is who sits on the throne of my life? Do I sit on the throne of my life? Do I have other things that come on the throne? Or am I going to allow God to sit on the throne of my life? And we talked all about that and how that's really, that guides every other thing that you do. And then uh, last week, we talked about this thing called a living sacrifice. And that worship is a living sacrifice out of the book of Romans. And the idea here is that uh, much of your walk with God, much of your life in going to church or hanging with other Christians or getting all the teachings of the Bible you can see immediate benefit for you. You can see, wow, this is good for me. It's good for me to learn these things because these truths are relevant and help me stay on track. It's good for me to be with other Christians because they love me. It's a community I can be really close to. There's all kinds of benefits, but there does come a point always, and it comes several times in our life, where we are asked to do something that doesn't seem to have a lot of benefit for us, and it's just a benefit for Jesus. It's something where he calls us to do something. And he says, I know that this doesn't look great for you. I know that this might be super hard or uncomfortable or expensive. I know that it's not the way you would choose to go. But every once in a while, it is so good for you to say, listen, it's not all about me. Because you sit on the throne. And sometimes I do something for you just because it's for you. And we talked all last week about this. This week, I want to talk about something that is really amazing, I think. And um, if you have your Bibles, Revelation 4, are you there? Revelation 4, yeah? All right. Whoever wooed, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to read out loud Revelation 4, 6. Okay, so surrounding the throne is what? A sea of glass. All right, I want to talk to you about that. That's the only thing we're going to look at in Revelation 4. So if you're there, that's it. We're just looking at the sea of glass. 
as in all of the things in Revelation, there is speculation and there's wonder about all the symbolism, all these things that are symbolized, and the sea of glass is one of those. And the question is, what does that symbolize? And I did a lot of reading this week, and there's all kinds of people that think all kinds of things, but let me tell you the one that I thought was the most intriguing, and also the one that I think is right. Uh, in the Jewish world, there was a temple in Jerusalem, and any Jew would have been familiar with not only the temple, but all the things that were in the temple and how temple worship worked. Jews were uh, basically commanded to go to the temple many times throughout their lifetime if they didn't live in Jerusalem. And if you lived in Jerusalem, the temple was kind of the center of everything. You bumped into stuff at the temple all the time. So it makes sense that when John is referring to something that might have had temple significance, temple worship significance, that maybe that's what he's talking about. And out in front of the temple was an altar where they would do sacrifices. And out in front of, or to either to the side or to the front of the altar, was this thing. It was this big bronze cistern a tub of water. It was gigantic, and it was ornate, and it was expensive, and it played a very prominent role. If you were going to worship God, this played a very prominent role. It is described to us in 2 Chronicles 4. You don't need to turn there, but we're going to bring up, yeah, we've got a picture here of what some artists think that it might have looked like. And this thing is large. You can tell by the people down at the bottom. Uh, and those are not women with dresses. Those are priests because they wore dresses too. Um, but you have uh, this huge cistern of water. And the purpose of the water was that the priests would come up and before they were able to sacrifice they would have to wash in it. And before they were able to sacrifice certain uh, animals and so forth, they had to wash the animals down with this water. And the, what it symbolized is that God needed to clean the things that were coming to be sacrificed. In other words, he was going to sort of bring a cleansing to what would be kind of spiritually dirty people. So the priest would come, and he's not a perfect guy, and the symbolism of washing the water was God is purifying is cleaning him and the symbolizing of washing the animals we're going to purify and clean the animal before the animal is sacrificed and the idea here is that God forgives no matter how dirty you are no matter what you bring there's this idea that God is going to bring this cleaning to you now guess what this big bronze cistern was called it was called the sea that's right it was called the sea and so that, you know, John says, look and behold, there was this sea that surrounded the throne. Uh, for a lot of Jews, immediately they would have thought about this sea. They would have said, well, that's like the sea in the temple. And if they had made that connection, what they would have, what they would have immediately thought is this sea of glass that surrounds the throne, this thing that sort of isolates in a way the throne from people is not the holiness of God necessarily. It is the grace of God. In other words, you have to go through God's grace if you're going to connect to God. You've got to, you've got to understand that you need something only God can give you, which is forgiveness, and, and he can clean you. But the thing that is so amazing about it is anyone can come. And in fact, the sea of glasses uh, again brought up in the book of Revelation. And at that point, all of us, all the saints, are standing around the sea of glass and in fact, in, in some of the translations, 
It almost seems like we are actually standing on this crystal sea of glass, and the idea is that God's grace is just permeating us. That we're coming to God, and God is giving us his grace, and it's allowing us to come to the throne. It's allowing us to come to him. He cleans us. And so it's, it's really this, this amazing picture of how far God's mercy goes, how much that he touches you and wants to bring you in. And of course, grace is never about earning. It's just about accepting. It's the idea of God says, I've got the sea of grace around me. I've got the sea of grace. Why don't you jump in and take a swim? Why don't you allow me to wash you clean? Why don't you let me come and heal the things that are broken in you? Why don't you come and let me give you hope as you have felt so hopeless? Why don't you come and let me uh, forgive your sins? And, you know, you try to clean yourself up, and sometimes you get it right, and sometimes you get it wrong, and a lot of times we feel like a failure, and a lot of times it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this again. And God just says, you know what? Instead of stressing about that, instead of worrying about that, why don't you just jump in the sea of grace? Why don't you just take a swim and just feel all of that guilt leaving you, all of that brokenness leaving you, all of the things that make you think that you'd never be good enough for God, and God says, you know what, it's not even about that. Just jump in the sea of grace. And, and I think you can see why I just love that picture, why that to me is such a compelling thing when you see the sea around the throne and you just picture it as God's grace saying, come, come. You know what? Nothing should stop you because I've taken care of everything. You just come. Jump in the sea. The thing that's interesting about grace is that we are so hesitant to jump in that sea, right? For some reason, we just think, no, I've got to earn it. I've just got to, I've got to clean myself up a little, don't I? I mean, isn't there a part that I've got to kind of lean in and I've got to make myself just at least a little acceptable to God? And it's just the most amazing thing because Jesus bends over backwards to say over and over and over again. And now we get this picture in Revelation that I think underscores the same point, is no, no, you don't. And in fact, you can't. You either jump into the sea of grace and just say, you know what? It's all about what you do for me here. Or you don't get into the sea at all. But there's another part of this dynamic. And I want us to look at this also. And uh, it's sort of highlighted. It's highlighted in a lot of places. But one of the places it's highlighted is in the great commandment. And you guys are familiar probably with the great commandment. It's in Matthew chapter 22 in one of the places that it's given. And uh, it's probably pretty familiar to uh, most of us. And if you've never heard this, this is kind of the central thing. Jesus was asked at one time, what's the most important thing out of everything? And this is what he said. Let's read this together. Jesus replied. All right, here we go. I, I know, I always jump in too quickly, right? You guys weren't ready. <sighs> you ready now? You feeling good? You ready to read this with me? Okay, here we go. Jesus replied. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophet, 
hang on these two commandments. Now, I want you to look just at something. Let's leave this up for a second, Lori. Let's just look. There's, there's, this thing gets parsed all over the place, and you've probably been taught on it a billion times. But um, there's a word I bet you've never looked at, and it's the word that's in the one, two, three, fifth line down, and it's like it. You see the like it there? That word means in exactly the same way that you've just done it above the line, now you need to do it below the line. In, in other words, what, what Jesus was getting at here is your connection to God, your ability to love God, is exactly like your ability to love other people. And in fact, those two things are connected where we very often dissect them and say, well, now I'm loving God and I love God and I go to worship service and I go to church and I read my Bible and I do all these things to love God. And then we sort of dissect that and say, and now I love other people and I'm treating my family well and I'm doing this and that and giving and so forth. Uh, God never has that dissection. He says, actually, these... Excuse me, these things are super connected to each other. As you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, just like that, you love your neighbor. And in, and in neighbor, the term neighbor, we think of neighbor as, you know, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, right? I mean, it's all the people that are like the mailman that comes by that we like and the fireman that comes in and we like and so forth. But Jesus redefined neighbor, right, in the Good Samaritan. And in the Good Samaritan, Jesus says, your neighbor isn't usually actually like you. He might be but not necessarily. And you might be comfortable with your neighbor, or you might be very uncomfortable with this neighbor. Or this neighbor may be uh, just like you, or this neighbor may be very different. This neighbor may make you feel safe, or this neighbor may scare you. And the point that Jesus makes here is it's kind of easy to love a neighbor that you like. Right? I mean, it's pretty easy to love someone who, if you do something for them, they're probably going to do something for you. Or they're just kind of like you. And so it's kind of easy. It's, it's easy to invite them for dinner or to do, give them a present because you like them anyway. And the point that Jesus makes when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, is your real love is going to be measured in how you love those that are not like you those that make you feel uncomfortable, those that you don't cross in your day-to-day -day life so much. They're kind of outside of the fringes. They're on the fringes of your life. Maybe they're standing on the side of the road with a sign. Or they live in a place of town that you don't even feel comfortable driving through. Or they make decisions with their life that you just go, those are such bad decisions. I'd never make those decisions. Or they're kind of immoral, you know? And God says, you know, I'm going to measure how well you love, not by how well you love people that are easy to love, but I want to see you loving people that are not easy to love. And so let me tell you kind of a, a secret about the sea of grace. When you jump in the sea of grace, you get wet. And if you're wet from swimming in the sea of grace this amazing grace that God covers you with, this amazing grace that saturates your life, that redefines everything, that makes your relationship with God okay even when you didn't live up to your part. When you get out and you touch someone else, what's going to happen to them? They're going to get wet. 
You know, I love this illustration so much because it's an opportunity for me with all of you sitting here to teach my wife a really important lesson. So Julie, I, I just know you're so excited to hear this right now. You need to smile because people are looking right now at you. So, you know, for years, you know, I, I like going in water, whether it's the ocean or pools, and, and Julie's not a super water person. And so I'll jump in and get all wet, and she'll be, you know, like, she doesn't even get in her bathing suit because she wants her, you know, I just, let's make things perfectly clear, I'm not going in. And so, you know, on occasion when I was younger and more foolish, I'd go in the water and then I'd come out and give her a big hug. And I'd go, you know, you really should go in anyway. And, you know, that, that always went over well. It, it actually, that went over a little bit better than after I'd get done playing basketball or something like that, working out, and I'd give her a big hug. That doesn't go over quite as well. But um, anyway, but you know what? There's actually a theological truth to this, which is God calls us when we've been swimming in the great uh, sea of grace to give people hugs, to make them wet with grace, for us to exhibit grace toward them. And in fact, Jesus emphasizes this over and over and over again. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hey, if you come to the altar and you're offering a worship and somebody has something against you, what are you commanded to do? Just go ahead and do your worship? Do you guys know that passage? What are you commanded to do? Leave. Leave. Don't do it. Don't come with the pretense of loving God if you're not loving other people. You go and fix that, and then you can come back and worship. That's a weird thing to say. You would think he'd say, you know what? Get right with God. Get everything really good with God. And then you can go take care of that. He says, no, that's a pretense. Don't act like everything's good this way if things aren't good this way. Go give grace. And then things are okay here. And you think, well, that's just one example. Do you remember the story that he tells about the guy that owes the king a billion dollars? And the king calls him in, and he says, I'm going to forgive you your debt. Do you guys remember this parable? And so he goes out, and he sees a guy that owes him a couple hundred dollars, and he starts strangling him, and he says, give me my money. And the guy goes, I can't pay you right now. And he goes, well, then I'm throwing you in jail. And do you remember what the king does? What does the king do? He grabs him, and he throws him in jail. And there's a conclusion. Jesus doesn't want you to guess. He says, if you don't forgive others, don't expect your heavenly father to forgive you. Now, isn't that a weird thing? That sounds like a works theology. Unless you're a forgiver, you're not going to be forgiven. That's what it sounds like to me. I've always stumbled over it until you understand how grace works. Because if you're swimming in the sea of grace and you're experiencing grace from God and that's saturating your life and you understand the amazing grace God has given you, of course, when you hug someone else, they're going to get wet. Of course, that's the way grace works. When you really get it, of course you give grace. And the indication that you don't understand this grace idea with God is that you don't distribute grace. And what Jesus says is if you're not distributing grace, you better look to see if you've got this thing going on at all. Because that's a sign of swimming in the sea of grace. You get wet and you hug other people with your grace. That's how grace works. Grace is all-inclusive. Either you're in the pool or you're not. It's all-inclusive. There's an example, and I'm not going to go through it, in um, Isaiah 58, and you can just read it because it's a great example of people coming to God to worship, and God just says, don't come to worship if you don't have 
the wet kind of thing going on as you hug other people. If people aren't getting wet around you, don't act like everything is good here because it's not. We are coming up on a season, as Caleb said, where uh, this is an incredible opportunity. We're going to take it as a church to love on people that need to be loved. To, to, uh, as a church, to distribute grace. And remember, grace is one of those things where uh, you give it to people that aren't necessarily the easiest people to give it to. I mean, that's really the indication that you've gotten grace, is that you give it to people where there's not much in, in it for you. And so in the next five weeks or so, as we ramp up toward Easter, you're going to feel a lot of push coming with all of us around of saying, hey, let's show grace. Let's distribute grace. Uh, in your programs, you are given a card that looks like this. Would you pull this out for just a second? I want to I show you it, and in a few minutes, Matt's going to walk you through it, actually. But these are the three questions we would like you to be kind of chewing on, thinking about, uh, moving on in the next five weeks. And uh, the first one really is this idea of this sort of self-denial or this idea of surrendering something. It's the idea that sometimes it comes down to loving Jesus means that I've got to do something that is kind of sacrificial. And I just want to ask you the question, what is it that God is calling you to sacrifice during this season? What, what line is he asking you to walk across that you usually don't because it's uncomfortable or it feels a little unsafe or you're too busy and you just don't have the time to get over that line? And yet, if you listen, there's a little conviction in you that God's saying, you know what, I'd really like you to do something that's not for you in this case, but something for someone else, some neighbor that needs what I want you, not, not other people, but you, you, to give. What is it that you're hearing me call you to? And here is what I'm convinced of, of the 200 or so people of you that are in this room. All of you are being called. You know, I think you're being called whether you're even a believer or not, whether you're a Christ follower or not. I just think that that's something God expects us to do. We've been given a lot. He pours his grace out on us all the time. And he's saying, in the next five weeks, there's going to be something that's going to come across your dashboard where it's going to be like, this is time for me to step up and do something, for me to give someone a hug who needs to get wet. And in a few minutes, Matt's going to allow you to just reflect on that question. And I want you to start now. The second question is, who are you praying for? And uh, Caleb kind of introduced us to an idea that I'd really like you to think about. So often when we get to Easter, um, you know, we give out invitations and people come on Easter. It's sort of American, right? You know, if you're an American, you go to church on Easter. It doesn't matter if you're religious, just everybody does that. And so I'm not concerned that we're going to, you know, we're going to have a bunch of people show up for Easter and a lot of people that don't normally go to church. The question is, are they going to be coming back the next week? And traditionally the answer is, no. <laughs> Traditionally, the answer is the next week, attendance almost goes back to right where it was before. So you get, you know, kind of a nice thing. Say hi to all the people that will be back 
at Christmas Eve, and, uh, and then you don't see him again for a while. And here's what we want, and I don't mean to be cynical about that. Here's what we want, though, is I really believe if you pray about it before you give the invitation, if you start thinking about people right now and really start praying about who you're going to invite, that maybe God's going to work in their life, and they're not going to just say yes to Easter. Easter might be their step in, but they're going to hang around. God's going to work in them in such a way that things are going to hit them, and they're going to say, you know, I think I'll come back next week. And that's really why we want you to pray. We want you to pray for that. And then the final one on the serving is, uh, this is not an exaggeration. There are people um, that are within a mile of this campus, people that could walk to the swap meet this morning. And, uh, you know, there are parents that woke up this morning and they don't know how they're going to get the medicine for their child. I mean, that's their prayer this morning. Just give us enough money to get medicine for my kid because I don't have health insurance. I, don't, I can't afford the medicine. We've got to get medicine for the kid. There are people that are waking up today and they are so hopeless. I mean, they really are wondering whether life is worth living. I mean, they're close enough to walk to us right now and they don't even know we're here. They don't even know we're talking about them, but they're sitting in their bed right now wondering, why, is it even worth it getting out of bed today? There's parents that are concerned about their kids' safety at the school that they're going to. There's people, from a spiritual standpoint, that feel like God has so distanced himself that there is no hope ever of connecting, and they don't know if they want to. There are people that have relationships that have gone south, people that are discouraged and depressed, And God is saying, who's going to stand in the gap? Who's going to be my hands and my mouth and my legs? Who's going to give the money? Who's going to do the things that are going to help these people? Because they're praying, and I'll just tell you a secret. God almost never divinely intervenes without using a person. It's almost always through a person that he works. And so he comes to his church and he says, hey, are you going to step up? The needs are there. People are asking. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. And we want to go away when we finish the service in a few minutes, really asking the question, God, what's my part in this? What is the part you have for me? And it's going to be similar to some of the people that you're going to see right now in this video. I am too young. Why me? I'm comfortable. I like my life. We both work full time. We have six kids and ten grandchildren. My husband is serving in Afghanistan and I'm raising two kids alone. You wouldn't believe my past if I told you. I'm really shy and I'm afraid I'm not going to do it right. Gangs, drugs, abuse, all before the age of 17. I was raised as a zealous Sunni Muslim. 
Where do I fit? I have a two-year-old and a four-month-old. I just don't have time. The thought of changing the world is daunting. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. I can't change the whole world. But I can change one world. I can make a difference to one person. I can make a difference to one person. I am leading a small group of junior high girls. I got on a bus at Mariners, not knowing where I was going, and I ended up serving at a homeless shelter. I went with my rooted group and started tutoring at Citrus Grove Community Center. We took a one-day trip to Miracle Ranch Children's Home in Mexico. I went to Haiti. I helped the kids build a soccer field at their church. I'm starting an outreach to military wives whose husbands are deployed. Now tutoring girls at the Wilshire Center. And living life deeply with my Muslim friends, I sincerely hope for them to see Jesus in me. I'm a big sister through the Big Brother Big Sister program. I helped found a ministry called Gethsemane Project, which helps those in need become financially self-sufficient. I'm a greeter on Sunday, and I can just make people feel welcome by giving them a smile. I am helping these girls see that they are valuable and that they have a voice. I realize that those people are human and need love and relationships just like I do. These kids can now move through the school system and go on to university. These kids were empowered. They learned that if they could change their church, they could change their community, they could change their city, they could change Haiti. When I tutor the kids with their homework, I see hope in their eyes. I'm reminding these women they're not alone. They are not forgotten. They have this confidence because someone believes in them. I told my girls, God doesn't care who we are or what we are, which is beautiful to him. I'm their friend without judgment or an agenda. I keep telling her, even though she's small, God will do big things through her. God has shown me that he is strong when I am weak. I'm helping people see that through God's grace, there's hope. Hope for a better future. Step out of your safety net. Out of your world. Change someone else's. It'll change yours. I can't change the whole world. But I can change one world. But I can change one world. Whose world will you change? Change one world. Change one world. Change one world. those awesome stories. Um, I just love that video. It just shows a lot of um, just really it's just anybody it could be anybody in this room. In fact there's people that are in this room that are in that video of just wrestling with their barriers and their journey and saying okay God how much you use me and what does my story look like and how are you going to redeem that and how do you want to use me as I go out and be your hands and feet. And so I just love that. You get to see a sense of you know each in their own way are making a difference and as they step out of they overcome those lines and those barriers that Kevin talked about. Um, God just meets them in that place, and they get to connect with him. Um, and I have a story that's like that, too. You know, I'm, I'm an outreach pastor at, um, at uh, Mariner's Church, and my name is Matt Oltoff. I don't know if my, there it is. Their name's up there. Great. Um, and so my story, you know, one of the things for me is uh, my story is just like them. I had barriers, and I was surprised as I started to wrestle with, okay, what does my story look like? And so I want to tell you a little bit about my story, but there's some pieces that I have to tell you that kind of, you know, there's some moving parts. One is um, I'm divorced. And so I've been divorced for several years. Um, I'm remarried to an amazing woman, and she's not here today, but she's great. But I have two kids with my ex-wife. And so it creates this tension. It creates this conflict as we kind of, you know, do life together and figure that out. And as I met my new wife, Bianca, um, and we just processed what kind of family we wanted to be and how God would use us, we just prayed. Um, you know, the kids that are in this situation, man, this is going to get emotional for me. Um, but it's not their fault. 
And so we just wrestle with what does it look like for God to be a part of their life? What does it look like to be a family that supports them and goes on this journey with them? And so about a year ago, uh, Bianca and I went down to Mexico, Rojo Gomez. Some of you guys have been down there. We went down there with a group, and we just started to connect with different people down there. And we decided to sponsor a kid, and his name is Pedro. And so we sponsored Pedro, and we sponsored him because our dream was, you know, we're wrestling with, uh, do we want to have kids of our own? Do we want to create that kind of family? What does that journey going to look like for us? But what we felt like God said to us in the moment is, hey, here's a kid that we can sponsor, that we can make a difference in his life. And maybe this becomes part of our family. And so we went back a year ago, back to uh, Irvine, and we said, you know, we're excited to introduce our kids to these sponsor kids. We want to take them down there. We want to create this sense that we're a family and we're doing this together. And a year goes by, and their, their mom was not super excited about taking them down to Mexico. So we had some challenges. And so for a long time, the answer was no. You know, we can't take them down there. We can't do this. And God does his, you know, God's doing his own thing in that time. And we forgot about it. We forgot about this dream that God gave us. And so out of the blue, their mom emails me and says, you know, I think it's okay if you want to take them down to Mexico. And so immediately I sign up. I go, okay, when's the next day trip? When's the next time I can get down there? My kids are six and eight, and so they're little. I said, how can I get down to Mexico? And so I found the date, and I signed up for it. And it was exactly one year from the time we went down and sponsored Pedro. And so in the midst of that, I forgot about the dream. I forgot about what God wanted to do in that. And so I signed up, and soon enough, my wife, Bianca, she couldn't go. She was out of town. And so I wrestled with all these, all these decisions of, okay, I'm busy. I got projects due on Monday. Can I really go down on Saturday? I have to take them down there by myself. I'll be a single parent. Is this going to be okay? Is it going to be safe? I start worrying about safety. All these things start freaking me out. And I come up with my own excuses to say, okay, you know what? I'm too busy. And here's what I actually did. I actually called people and said, kind of asking them permission to say, no, no, you're right, you're overwhelmed, you shouldn't go. And that didn't work. And they said, you know, you probably need to go on this journey. And so Saturday morning, early in the morning, barely get out of bed, I take my kids, we show up at the church. And we go, all right, here we go. I'm frustrated, I'm overwhelmed, I'm going, is this the right decision? What's going to happen? And I have, in the midst of this, lost track of the dream. And so we get in this van, and we go down, and we're just going down, and I'm still, I have, I, there's nothing I did in this moment to get us down there. There really isn't. I didn't, call, I didn't call Rojo Gomez or the pastor and arrange things. God just did this whole thing. And as we drove down in the van, we showed up, and we were doing a medical clinic. We showed up at this school, and there's kids playing. And we show up, and there's Pedro. I didn't call him, I didn't ask him, I didn't arrange for this. And so this dream comes flashing over me. In this moment, I walk up to Pedro, we're playing soccer, and he remembers who we are. A year later, he goes, you're Matt and Bianca. And so I get to introduce him to my kids. And my son and Pedro are inseparable throughout the day. And they're playing soccer, and they're playing basketball, and Pedro, when we first met him, we sponsored him. He was this kid that kind of had this, you know, he didn't, he didn't smile. And, and he was like, you know, didn't want to be affectionate. And I got to hear a little bit of his story about his dad left him. He didn't have a dad. And so in the midst of this day of playing soccer with a sponsor child and my kids, and we're just having a blast, and Pedro starts to be affectionate with me. He's jumping on my back. He's grabbing my arm. He's asking me to play. And in the midst of that, he finds his mom. 
and says, I want you to meet my mom. So I get to meet his mom, and I forgot about the story of their dad abandoning them. And for a moment, I got to see this beautiful thing that God did. And I get to see Mexico and poverty through my kids' eyes. My daughter, Ryan, is like, why is everything destroyed? And she's asking questions about what the houses that they live in and how they live. And so here in the midst of this, I had these barriers, much like you guys in this room, of going, I'm too busy. I don't have time to do this. I, God doesn't want to use me. Maybe it's your past. Maybe it's your story. Maybe there's fear. I had all these excuses. And I actually made phone calls to try to get out of it. But God wouldn't let me do that. And really all I had to do is show up. And God does this amazing thing. And so I know you guys in this room, I know part of the hunting to me story of how many of you guys, you guys are a generous church. You guys have gone through Rooted. You guys are in life groups. And God is doing all kinds of things where you guys have stepped out and been a part of that journey. But like me, I know there's probably people in here that forgot, that lost sight of the dream that God gave them. And here I was as an outreach pastor. I knew all this stuff. And yet all I had to do was show up and God did the rest. And the most beautiful thing that I would have missed is I'm walking my dog, and you know kids are really, you know, they count the number of boys and girls in the family, so they're really, that's really important to them. And so I'm walking my son, or walking the dog with my son, not walking my son. <laughs> and we're in this moment, and my son turns to me and he goes, this is after Mexico, he goes, Pop, I have two brothers, right? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, the dog and Pedro. And so, if it was up to me, I would have missed what God was doing. And in that moment of stepping out and just showing up, God does these incredible things. And don't you want that for you, where you connect in this intimate way for what God has for your family and what God has for you and for your story? And so I want to share a scripture passage with you guys. Uh, Kevin hinted at it, Isaiah 58, and... um, Starting in verse 6. And I love this passage. And this passage makes me emotional as well because you'll listen to it. It talks about fasting. It talks about this idea of worship. It talks about this idea of who God wants us to be. And so it says, if you do these things, then God will respond to you in this way. And it's it's not a works thing. It's just, you know what? As we show up, as we step out, as we connect relationally with who, or love our neighbor, whoever that might be, God is in that. Matthew 25 paints this picture of every time we encounter somebody in need, we are encountering Jesus. And so I want you guys just to listen to this, this I read this. And there are promises that God wants for you and your family as you step out and as you show up. So listen to this in verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loosen the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wander with shelter when you see the naked, clothe them and and not, uh, not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Now listen, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then, Your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and I will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night 
will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and he will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will rise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairers of broken walls, or repairers of Huntington Beach, restorer of streets with dwellings. Down into verse 14. Then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father, Jacob. And so as you hear that, God's promises are, this is the only thing he asks for you. Show up. Step out. Whatever barriers that you guys have, you know, we can sit here and we can talk about all the excuses that we saw in that video. There was people that were afraid. There were people that were too old, too young. They were too busy. This isn't me. This isn't what, I don't want to do this. Everybody comes up with all kinds of excuses. I came up with an excuse. I was too busy. And I actually knew better. And what, you know, my excuse, I would have, if I had had my way like I had said, I would have missed this moment of these promises that God wanted for my family and God wanted for me. And so I'm going to challenge you guys. Again, I know your guys' story, and there's all different kinds that you guys, uh, there's all kinds of things that you guys can do. You guys will go out on the patio just after this time, and we have given you all these opportunities for you to take your first step. And there's things where you can pick up, there's, there's kids right here on this campus of Golden West that are foster kids that don't have, some are homeless, that don't have a place to go and we're going to do Easter care packages for them. There are single moms on this campus that we want to do an Easter care package for them and so there's an easy way. You just walk out, you can pick this up and say, hey, I want to jump in, I want to get involved. There's another card out there that has all different kinds of stuff that we're going to start doing at Huntington Beach, ways that we're going to get involved. Whether it's Haiti or whether it's Mexico or whether it's saying, hey, I want to be a part of what we're doing here locally in Golden West, whatever it might be, we're going to have opportunities on the patio for you guys to do that. And so I want to ask you guys, as you hold this card, what's your excuse? What are you afraid of? Don't you want this amazing blessing that God has for you? I want that for you. It's emotional for me because it changed my life. And I want you to have that same experience. I want that for you guys. And so as you're sitting here and the band is going to come up and they're going to start playing some music and different things like that, I want you to wrestle with this thing. What barrier, what do you need to surrender, what line do you need to cross? And if you don't have a pen, just think of it, you know, type it in your iPhone. What do you need to surrender? What do you need to overcome? As God has this journey for you. So take a couple seconds and just think about that. What do you need to surrender?